Our lesson is Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. It can be found on page 41 of your New Testament Pew Bible. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And so, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to the church. Good morning. Would you pray with me? Loving God, open our hearts in this moment to hear your holy word for us afresh this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So by the end of the 15th century, the Christian church was arguably the most powerful institution that was on the entire planet. Its great cathedrals, they dotted the landscape of Western Europe. The church aristocracy, they they influenced kings, and they lived like kings as well. To maintain such wealth, the church had developed a practice of selling indulgences, which released a person from financial or legal obligation incurred as a result of sin. Now, the practice worked wonderfully for the wealthy, who could literally pay for their crimes, and it was correspondingly devastating for the poor, who could not. The real winner, though, was the church which said that although God released the offender from his or her heavenly obligation, a person was still required to pay an earthly price for their sin. They even went so far as to claim that one could buy indulgences for those who had already deceased, a way of releasing their souls from purgatory. But it was the so-called Jubilee indulgence authorized by Pope Leo X to pay for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Cathedral that drove a 34-year-old monk named Martin Luther to say enough is enough. And on October 31st, 1517, Martin nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Well, church doors were commonly used then as a way of making a public notice, and he chose his day strategically so that it would be read by all of those coming for the All Saints Day 
that next morning. That public notice, along with considerable help from the newly invented printing press, spread Luther's 95 Theses across Germany in two weeks and across all of Europe in two months, originally intending to start a discussion Martin Luther had inadvertently unleashed the Protestant Reformation. As his ideas spread, others began to take up the cause. In 1536, the French-born John Calvin published his Institutes of the Christian Religion, firmly establishing himself as Luther's successor and the Reformation's primary theologian. And from there, the river of the Reformation branches into many streams, and our own Presbyterian heritage runs from John Calvin through John Knox in Scotland and on to this country, which is why we will enjoy Highland Cathedral on bagpipes later today. The problem with the 15th century church was that it had forgotten that God is God, and we are not God, which I suppose in a way is always the problem, isn't it? And the selling of indulgences was an indication of just how far it was willing to twist the message of Jesus in order to protect its power. It was arrogance, pure and simple. Now, during the Reformation, there was a common battle cry that one still hears at Presbyterian meetings now and then. It went, the church reformed always to be reformed according to the word of God. Or in its more common, shorter version, the church reformed and always reforming. Now by this, the reformers likely had in mind the way that theology would change as our understanding of the world grew. Maybe the way ecclesial structures would evolve over time. But they almost certainly had in mind that the human heart is in constant danger of thinking too highly of itself. And its reformation is a necessary and ongoing process. That journey from arrogance to humility is not an easy one for most most of us. And not to be confused with uh, meekness, Real humility requires a kind of self-assurance. The self-assurance to know and to accept our own smallness. It is to see and understand our proper place in the grand scheme of things. And it's in our lesson today that Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, teaches us this lesson. What do you want me to do for you? That's the question Jesus asks him. It's a question we might easily overlook, except that it's the very same question, exactly the same wording, that Jesus asks his two disciples, James and John, in the story just before this story, in the same chapter. That is unlikely to be a coincidence. The author of the Gospel of Mark is counting on us to make the connection between these two and to learn from the very different answers that are given. Bartimaeus says, My teacher, 
I want to see. That's what he wants from Jesus, to see again, to be healed. James and John, the followers of Jesus, respond by saying, Lord, when you come into your glory, put one of us at your right hand and the other at the left. And that's it. It's the struggle of our human hearts. Do we want to be healed or do we want to be admired? Do we want to serve or do we want to be served? There's something in us that is always pushing upward toward our own greatness and inward toward our own self-centeredness. But the direction of the gospel is downward, downward and outward, toward humility, toward concern for others, and toward the greatness, not of us, but of God. And what an irony that a blind beggar sees what the disciples can't. The disciples, like the church of the 15th century, are blinded by their own self-importance, seeking greatness over faithfulness. And there's a second telling connection in this story too. This time with that of the rich young ruler, which is also in this same chapter in the Gospel of Mark. That story begins in verse 17, so the reader might still be thinking about it by verse 49, when Jesus calls to Bartimaeus and the text says, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, if you're a beggar in the first century, how important do you think your cloak is? It's everything, right? It's your sleeping bag. It's your raincoat. It may be your only, your every possession. And if you're blind and you've just thrown your cloak down, what are the chances that you're going to find that again? Could it be that the author of Mark is saying to us that Bartimaeus isn't coming back for that cloak? That he is giving away his only, his every possession and turning to Jesus? So if you've still got the rich young ruler in mind from verse 17, Remember what Jesus says to him. Sell what you have, and give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And of course we know the ending, don't we? He goes away grieving, for he has many possessions. Now maybe in our heart of hearts, we think that it's easier though for Bartimaeus to give up his cloak than for a rich man to sell all of his possessions. I mean, doesn't, after all, a blind beggar have less to lose? But that is the same kind of thinking that says that a migrant worker has less to lose when he is separated from his family than you or I would. Or that a person who's forced to sleep outside in the cold and risk her life has less to lose than we would. But of course, they have exactly the same that we have to lose. They have everything to lose. 
It's the humility of Bartimaeus again that's being contrasted with those who, believing perhaps they have other choices, they lose sight of their own need for grace, their dependence. Now, since today's also Stewardship Sunday, I want to try to bring these together. The reforming of our hearts toward humility and toward the downward and outward direction of the gospel, that's the work of our lives. It's work that's never fully done. But if we're looking for an honest mirror of how we're doing, there may be none better than our relationship with money. The arrogance of the early church also made it greedy. Because arrogance breeds greed. And likewise, the humility of Bartimaeus makes him generous. Humility breeds generosity. Because when we see, as Bartimaeus did, our proper place, then we see how dependent we are. We see how interconnected all of us are. We see how in need we are of each other and the grace of God. And so the result is that we don't feel the need to cling so tightly to our money and our possessions. We are set free to throw off our cloaks and move from a self-centered world to a, to a God-centered world spend less time propping up our small stories and paying more attention to others' stories and the story of God in this world. Because generosity is not just about what you do or don't give to or how much you give away. One person can give thousands of dollars to a charity and not be very generous at all. Another can give much less and be overflowing with generosity. Because generosity is an internal quality. It's a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world and seeing our place in the world. And so every year when we come forward, like we will in a few minutes, and bring our prayers and our pledges to support Montview and all that it does, there is something so beautiful about this. Because while we're all in different places in our heart's journey toward humility and reformation, together we come forward, we bring our gifts, I think as a way of saying that we need each other and that we need the grace of God, that we need to be a part of something bigger than our little lives. It is a communal act of throwing off our cloaks And we declare that we want to be a little less arrogant and greedy. And we want to be a little more humble and generous. We declare that we are reformed and always reforming.